invite you to open your Bible with me. We'll be in Romans chapter 2 this morning, verses 17 through 29. Romans chapter 2, verses 17 through 29. Our sermon title is Misplaced Trust. One of the biggest examples of misplaced trust, perhaps, is the failed investment. We have been uh, more than aware of these things lately in the news. Victims of Ponzi schemes and Enron scandals and such. But perhaps the, one of the greatest examples of a failed investment most people today are not aware of is the Dutch tulip mania of the 17th century. Uh, the way that goes is tulips began to be imported from Turkey into Europe in the 1600s. And uh, there in uh, the Netherlands, it became such a, a tremendous uh, fad that people were selling their entire estates to purchase one of these beautiful flowers. Lo and behold, people saw this as a get-rich scheme, and so they began to sell everything they had to, to purchase these tulips and to buy stock into these flowers. But lo and behold, supply and demand began to change. People became aware of the fact, you know, if all i got to do is plant these bulbs in the ground, and guess what? These tulips will grow. And, and so everybody began to grow tulips, and nevertheless, those who sold everything for these flowers lost everything they had. In our series through Romans, entitled Right with God, Paul shows us today how some make the greatest of failed investments, and that is the failed eternal investments, by misplacing our trust in things we ought not to trust in, we, in fact, lose our eternal destination. Paul tells us here in Romans that we should trust in God's mercy and not in human merits to be saved from God's judgment. It is not our efforts, not our works, not our heritage that saves us. Paul said it is only by the grace of God found in Jesus Christ. Let me invite you to stand if you're able this morning. I'll be reading from the book of Romans chapter 2 starting at verse 17. And the Apostle Paul writes these words under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. But if you bear the name Jew and rely upon the law and boast in God and know His will and approve the things that are essential being instructed out of the law and are confident that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, a corrector of the foolish, a teacher of the immature, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and of truth. You, therefore, who teach another, do you not teach yourself? You who preach that one shall not steal, do you steal? You who say that one should not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law through your breaking the law, do you dishonor God? For the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you, just as it is written. For indeed circumcision is of value if you practice the law. But if you are a transgressor of the law, your circumcision has become uncircumcision. So if the uncircumcised man keeps the requirements of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? And he who is physically uncircumcised, if he keeps the law, will he not judge you 
though having the letter of the law and circumcision, are a transgressor of the law. For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh. But he is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is that which is of the heart by the Spirit, not by the letter. And his praise is not from men, but from God. Let's pray together. Mighty God, we are so thankful, Lord, to be in this place today. So grateful to be surrounded by your people. To have the opportunity, Lord, to praise you in song and through giving. To bring our burdens to you in prayer. And Father, above all things, we are grateful today that we have your word. We are so thankful, God, that you have spoken through your word. And Lord, we know who you are. We know your expectations. We also know how we fall short of your holiness. Father, we also are so grateful that in your word you show us the truth, not only of our sin, but of our Savior. And so as we come today, Lord, help us to have a firmer understanding of the gospel. Help us, Lord, to understand how much we need Christ and help us understand how sufficient He truly is. So Lord, bless us today through the preaching of Your Word. Open our hearts to receive it. Lord, transform our lives to make us more like Christ. In His name we do pray. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. In our study through Romans thus far, we have seen Paul explaining everyone's need for the Gospel. To show how good the good news is, he begins by showing how bad the bad news is. And he explains in chapter 1, verse 18, that God's wrath, His righteous judgment, is already being revealed. And there is a day coming where God will call everyone to account for their actions. In chapter 1, he ended by showing how Gentiles, those who were not Jews by birth and by practice, he shows how Gentiles are guilty and deserving of God's wrath. And now the focus in chapter 2 and the first part of chapter 3 is on the Jews, on those who claim to be God's covenant people. We see in verse 17, Paul speaks about those who bear the name Jew. And by the time we come to the end of our text today, in verses 28 and 29, he speaks about what it really means to truly be a Jew in God's sight. And so what was implicit last week in the first 16 verses has now become explicit. Paul is saying those who claim to be Jews, you cannot be saved just by claiming your heritage and by your religious privileges. He says, first of all, don't trust a failed ministry. What Paul has to say to the Jews is also applicable to us. As we said last week, we have been raised perhaps in the Bible Belt and perhaps we have a Christian heritage of parents and grandparents and we're surrounded by good moral people and sometimes we think that is enough and that's what it means to be a Christian. And Paul says today, don't trust a failed ministry. And by that, first of all, he speaks about the revelation from God, how God has revealed Himself. 
how God has spoken to us and God has shown us who he is and what he expects. And this goes back to God's gracious covenant with Abraham. Back in Genesis chapter 12, God called Abraham and, and said, Come and follow me and obey me and I will make you a mighty nation. And in fact, your descendants will be a blessing and all the nations of the earth will be blessed in your seed, which we know now as Jesus. And so God revealed himself to Abraham and God revealed himself further to Moses following the exodus of the children of Israel out of Egypt and, and journeying towards the promised land. God revealed himself through the inspiration of the law. God gave Moses a a written instruction, a, a written revelation of who he is and what he expects. And Paul speaks about that in chapter 2. We already saw several times last week and now several times today. Paul mentions the law and what it really is meant to do. And beginning in verses 17 and 18, Paul gives six positive affirmations that the Jews stood upon. And Paul does not condemn these things. In fact, I would say Paul argues these things are all good and they're meant to be good. And he begins, first of all, in verse 17. He says, you bear the name Jew. That's short for Judah, which from the tribe of Judah we saw uh, in the book of Genesis, God promises to send the Messiah. And Paul says, you claim the name Jew. You claim to be God's covenant people. And that's a good thing, to desire to be one of God's people. And he goes on to say, you rely upon the law, the written uh, revelation, the written instruction from God that, that God has given to his people. And he says, you you'd rely upon that, and that's good. You don't spurn the law. You don't shame those who try to follow the law. You rely upon the law. You boast in God. In fact, the Old Testament says some boast in chariots and some boast in horses, but we trust in the Lord our God. And Jeremiah says, Let the strong man not boast in his strength, let the wise man not boast in his wisdom, but boast in the Lord our God. Paul says, You choose to do that. In verse 18, You, you know his will and you approve the things that are essential. And how do they know His will? And how do they know what to approve as right or wrong? Where, where is the moral compass for the Jew? Paul says, you are being instructed out of the law. So Paul here begins with the fact of the revelation of God, that God has spoken to His people. God has entered into a covenant relationship with Abraham and his descendants. God has promised to bless all the nations through Abraham's seed, which is Christ. And Paul says that God has given us his inspiration of the law so that we see the Jews were to have the instruction of the law. Verses 19 and 20. In the Old Testament, God's calling for Israel was to be a blessing to the nations, to receive God's law, to live God's law, and then also to instruct the nations. Israel was to be God's teacher. In fact, in Exodus 19, verses 5 and 6, we are told that Israel has been saved and redeemed from Egypt so that Israel would be a kingdom of priests. 
to all the nations. Israel was to be God's mouthpiece, God's teacher of the law to others. Paul brings that out, verses 19 and 20. He says, And you are confident that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, a corrector of the foolish, a teacher of the immature, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and of truth. Paul in no way condemns the law. He says it's from God and it's a good thing. It's meant to to be the embodiment of truth and of knowledge. But then Paul shows that although they have the revelation from God, they have also the rejection by God. He says you have this wonderful gift from God in the law and you have this ministry from God to be an instructor of right and wrong and morality to the world. And even though you have that, you are guilty of hypocrisy. He says you have this knowledge and you teach this truth. But do you practice what you preach? In verse 21, he says, You therefore, although you have all of these things, and you boast and you claim and all these things, you who teach another, do you not teach yourself? You are not practicing what you preach. You are not walking what you talk. You therefore, who teach another, do you not teach yourself? And then he gives an example out of some of the commandments and some of the laws of the Old Testament, what we know as the Ten Commandments. Paul references these things. First of all, the Eighth Commandment, he says, You who preach that one shall not steal, do you steal? And so for the pious Jew, those who seek to follow the law to the letter, they would say, I I do not steal. I don't take anything that does not belong to me. But Jesus shows us the proper way to interpret the law is not external actions, it's internally. And as Paul brings out these laws, he indicts the Jews of violating these things. You who preach that one shall not steal, do you yourself, do you steal? He says in this they are guilty of social guilt, sins against their neighbors, of taking what does not belong to them, or even coveting. If we could go to the Tenth Commandment, of coveting something that they do not have that someone else has in their mind, in their heart's desire, wanting and stealing what does not belong to them. There's social guilt. There's sexual guilt. Verse 22, he says, You say that one should not commit adultery. Do you commit adultery? You say there's a right way and there's a wrong way. Are you guilty of doing the wrong thing? And once again, Jesus shines light on that for us in the New Testament. He says, If you look at someone with lust, you are guilty of adultery even in your heart. It's not always about what's going on on the outside, but what's happening on the inside that others do not see that God knows it is there and God knows the thoughts and the intentions of our hearts. There's social guilt, sexual guilt, spiritual guilt. Verse 22, he says, You who abhor idols, you who hate 
idols and false gods and false religions? Do you rob temples? The question could be asked. Is he speaking literally here? And certainly that was the case in that day and age. Uh, uh, idolatry was a very lucrative business. And those who, who bought and sold graven images oftentimes made a lot of money in that. And there were some who would plunder temples and then sell those idols and those images for profits. And certainly there were some Jews that were involved in that. But once again, if we think about it in the in the symbolic terms or in spiritual terms, Paul is saying, you are guilty of idolatry. And how is that the case? Verse 23, you who boast in the law, through your breaking the law, do you dishonor God? You're boasting in this moral code on one hand, but on the other hand, you are breaking this moral code and in doing so, you dishonor God. You are not glorifying God with your life. You are not giving God the glory that appropriately belongs to Him. And as such, you are guilty of the very same things as the Gentiles are. Chapter 1, verse 21, Even though they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks. They became futile in their speculations and their foolish heart was darkened. Paul says, Jews, you are guilty of the same thing. Even though you have the law of God, and even though you boast in having the possession of this law, you're guilty of breaking this law. You are just as deserving of God's wrath as the Gentiles. And he goes on to say, verse 24, how they dishonor God, for the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. The way that you live, because there's inconsistency in your life, because you're saying one thing and doing another, and even though on the external it may look good, on the internal things are rotten, Paul says, by claiming the name of God and the law of God, you are actually dishonoring God in the way you live. And church, there's a message in there for us. As we take the name Jesus upon us, we call ourselves Christians, which means literal, literally little Christ. And we take the name Jesus in our lips and, and we call ourselves Christians and we go out in the world and we shame people for sinning in some ways and then we are guilty of sinning, not even in the other ways, but internally the same way. Paul would say to us who call ourselves Christians as he does to those who are Jews, even though you have the truth and you're preaching the truth and you're trusting in that truth, you're not living that truth. Can this failed ministry save us? In fact, Paul says you're guilty of breaking the 8th commandment and the 7th commandment and might as well throw the 1st, 2nd, and 3rd in there like this. You are not worshiping God wholeheartedly. You, in fact, are worshiping idols and false gods, and you are blaspheming the name of the Lord our God. So right there, there's five of the Ten Commandments. You, you, you claim to base your, your salvation on your morality, and you can't even keep half of the Ten Commandments, Paul would say to the Jews, and he would say the same thing to us. 
our morality, our, our ministry of, of having the truth of God, just, just knowing the truth and having the truth and speaking the truth, that ain't enough. Because there is not a, a living of the truth that we're able to do on our own. And having the truth, I think, means that we should know better. I was in a situation recently where there were three young kids. They, they weren't my kids. And they weren't any of y'all's kids. So I don't want to uh, indict anybody here. But there was three kids, and they were just extremely rowdy in a public setting. And their parents weren't around, and, and they were old enough. In fact, one of them, I would say, was probably 10 or 11 years old, and he was, he was old enough to know better. Which I think makes him even more guilty. He was old enough to know better right and wrong, and how to act and how to behave, and yet he didn't, and he was leading others astray, even though he knew better. The Jews were guilty of that same thing. They knew God's Word. They knew what God expected and what God demanded. They ought to have known they were unable to fully keep that law. But yet they boasted in it while breaking it. The law was never intended to save anyone. The law, Paul would say, was intended to show us our guilt and our inability and then drive us to the mercy of God that's found in the cross of Christ. The law was never intended to save anyone. It was intended to show us the righteous judgment of God and how we fall short. But they were trying to trust in that law while breaking that law that failed ministry cannot save them and it cannot save you. In fact, it brings greater accountability. If you know right from wrong and you still do wrong, you will be judged even stricter because of that. Don't trust a failed ministry. Paul goes on to say, don't trust a faulty mentality either. The Jews were, were boasting, we've got the law. And they were also boasting in the covenant sign of circumcision, of the physical removal of the foreskin and saying that this sign of the covenant means we are God's people and we are right with God. And Paul says that's a faulty mentality. Why is that? Because first of all, that's external religion. That's, that's human efforts. That's trying to earn God's favor the outward sign of circumcision that was given to Abraham in the Old Testament that was practiced by pious Old Testament Jews that, that outward sign that external religion they were hoping and claiming that was enough all I've got to do is check off these boxes of what I can do and God will accept me and they pointed to circumcision of, uh, as that sign. Paul says in verse 25, that external religion, that's, that's not enough. He says, indeed, circumcision is of value. Circumcision is a sign that you are, are, are committing yourself to the law. And he says, it is of value if you practice the law. Not saying if you're an attorney. Practicing the law means obeying and keeping the law. And it's in the present tense. That means it's something you start doing and you never stop doing. 
if you start obeying the law and you perfectly keep the law and you never break God's moral law ever, 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 then that sign of circumcision really means something. He says, but if you are a transgressor of the law, if in any way you enter into that covenant with God and saying, I will perfectly obey every piece of the law, if you enter into that covenant with God and then you are a transgressor of the law, if you break that in any way, your circumcision, your physical sign of the covenant has become un." circumcision. He said, if you violate God's law in any way, that outward sign loses its meaning. That external religion is not enough. In fact, Paul goes even further than that and he says in verse 26, if the uncircumcised man, if the Gentile who's never performed that external religious ritual, if that man keeps the requirement of the law, if he never violates it, if he never breaks it, Will not his uncircumcision be regarded by God as circumcision? Will the man who's, who's never physically performed the act and the sign of the covenant of God, if he keeps God's law, that doesn't matter. Keeping of the law in perfection. That's the standard of the old covenant. Paul says it doesn't matter what you do externally with, with the body and the sign of the covenant, if you break God's law, you're guilty of breaking all of it. The external religion. If you break God's law, you're an outsider. You're outside the covenant and you have no hope. You're a transgressor. You're guilty of uncircumcision. You're not part of God's covenant community. You're lost. Paul says, if you think morality is the way to go, you'd better be 100% perfect. Bad news is you can't. Those claiming the old covenant were claiming moral perfection and guilty of not being morally perfect. External religion is a faulty mentality. Paul goes on to speak about the essential requirement. If claiming the law is what you think makes you right with God. If morality is what you think makes you right with God, you better keep the whole thing. If you don't, there's a problem, there's danger. Verse 27, Paul says, He who is physically uncircumcised, if he keeps the law, will he not judge you? Even though you have the letter of the law, you know exactly what it says word for word in black and white, written in stone, carved in stone. You have the law. You know what it says. And you have circumcision, the physical act uh, of, of the sign of being in a covenant relationship with God. Even though you have those things, the man who doesn't have those things, if he keeps the law, will he not also judge you? Will he not also be a testimony against you? You're claiming the law to be saved. This man over here doesn't have the law. He keeps it. You don't. He's a testimony to your guilt. Because you claim to be morally perfect and you're not. Even though you've got these privileges, you, you just can't ever be good enough. 
you are guilty of transgressing the law. So what is the only hope? What is the essential requirement? It's not keeping the law because we all transgress it, Paul would say. It's trusting the Lord. The essential requirement is not keeping the law. It's trusting the Lord. He shows that verse 28, first part of 29. He says, For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly. The reason why the uncircumcised man who keeps the law is a, is a testimony against the man who has the law and circumcision, the reason that is the case is that he is not a Jew who is one outwardly. It's not about your heritage. It's not about your ethnicity. It's not about being raised and, and born and bred in a good Christian home and surrounded by a good Christian environment. That's not enough. He's not a Jew who is one outwardly. And to that he would say, you are not a Christian who says you are one outwardly. Nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh. That's not true Judaism. That's not true circumcision. The ethnicity, the heritage, the, the outward rituals, that cannot save you. Verse 29, but... He is a Jew. He is a member of God's covenant community. He is truly a saved individual who is one inwardly. The inward part where no one else can see but God. He is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is that which is of the heart. So he's getting to the root of the issue here. Paul has spoken about the, the, the heart and the problem of the heart several times in chapter 1 and 2. Chapter 1, verse 21, Paul speaks about their foolish heart was darkened. Verse 24, God gave them over in the lusts of their hearts. Chapter 2, verse 5, because of your stubbornness and unrepentant hearts. Verse 15, in that they show the works of the law written in their hearts. Paul says the heart of the matter is the matter of the heart. It's not about religion. It's not about ethnicity. It's not about tradition. It's not about morality. It's about the heart. Is your heart circumcised or not? That's how you're truly a Jew. That's how you're truly a Christian. That's how you are truly saved. That's how you are truly part of the body of Christ. Jew, Gentile, doesn't matter what's going on in the hearts. That is what makes someone right with God. The circumcision of the heart, the, the, the transformation of the heart, as we said last time, the transplants of the heart. That old, selfish, sinful, depraved, darkened heart is taken out and a new heart is put in. And how does that happen? Obeying the law? Keeping God's moral codes? Being a quote-unquote good person? Is that what transforms the heart? Paul says in verse 29, that which is of the heart by the Spirit, not by the letter. Paul says the law can't change your heart. You can't be right with God with a, with a depraved heart. 
You can't be right with God with a with an inward inward nature that's sinful. By the way, we all have it. We all have that sin nature. We all sin because we are sinners. We're not sinners because we sin. We sin because we are already at the core sinners. And Paul says, unless something happens to the heart, you're headed to hell. Unless a radical transformation takes place and the law can't do it, the letter can't do it, you can't keep the law enough. You will violate it at some point, either externally or internally. You will break God's moral code and you're guilty of breaking the whole thing and you stand condemned. It's not by the letter. It is by the Spirit of God. And how does that happen? Paul says, Romans chapter 1, verse 16, I'm not ashamed of the gospel for it's the power of God for salvation. It's the gospel message. The Holy Spirit works in and through the gospel presentation. The telling of the good news of Jesus Christ through your lips to someone else's ears and then to their head and then to their heart, the Holy Spirit works through that avenue. When you tell somebody about Jesus, it's not about your creativity and your presentation, your charisma. It's about the power of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit transforms the heart. The Spirit circumcises the heart, cuts away the flesh, cuts away the sin, and purifies the heart. It's inwardly. It's not about being a Jew. It's not about being a Gentile. It's about being saved by the Spirit's work in the heart. Paul says, it's by the Spirit, not by the letter. Later on in Romans, he fleshes this out, pun intended. He fleshes it out more as he speaks about the Spirit and the flesh and what the Spirit does. But right now, he is driving home the point. No one can be good enough to keep God's law perfectly. Therefore, everyone will be condemned, but the only thing that can change the heart is the Holy Spirit through the message of the gospel. By telling someone about the work of Jesus Christ, how he lived a sinless life that none of us could, that he gives us his righteousness, he himself takes our sin and our guilt. It's a balanced transfer. When Jesus went to the cross... He went as a righteous substitute to give us His righteousness and to take our guilt so that not only are we forgiven of our sins, we stand before God righteous and morally pure because Jesus is morally pure and righteous. Now all of our sin is forgiven because the penalty has been paid on the cross. We stand before God right with Him because of the work of the Spirit bringing the righteousness of Jesus and giving it to us. That then leads finally to the eternal reward. Verse 29. Paul says, It's by the Spirit, not by the letter, and His praise is not from men, 
but from God. You know, you can earn the praise of men by putting on a show, by looking like a, a, a fine, outstanding gentleman or, or lady, just a good person, just a good neighbor, a nice law-abiding citizen. And, and you can earn the praise of men and still spend eternity in hell. Paul says, the praise of one who is circumcised by the Spirit and uh, in the heart, the praise is not from men but from God. That's the eternal reward. The praise from God. Not only, not only saved by Him, but, but praise from God. God Himself saying, well done. Good and faithful servant, yes, I accept you. And I praise you, not because of your works in trying to keep the law, but by humbly accepting the free gift of salvation that I give to you. The praise that comes from God. Humbly submitting to God's plan, God's message. Coming to God on God's terms. Either full moral perfection, and we fall short, but not Christ. Full moral perfection. Or we come to God through the grace that comes through the Spirit and the preaching of the Gospel. He says eternal rewards, praise from God. Eternal joy. Eternal acceptance from God, not on our goodness, but on His grace, by and through His grace, humbly submitting to God's plan and then being exalted by Him. So as Paul says, we need to trust in God's mercy, not human merit, to be saved from God's judgment. The other day we saw news, perhaps you've seen this, that the Titanic II is being built. The Titanic II is going to take the same voyage, the, the same route that the first Titanic took from England to North America. And, and the kids heard about this. In, in the year 2022, the Titanic II is set to sail from Europe to North America. My kids heard this and they were like, oh my goodness, how stupid can you be? <laughs> like, no! We, we saw what happened to the first Titanic. Why would you do it all over again? Thousands of people perished because they trusted in the stability and the soundness of that ship. And then here you got people doing it all over again and we try to you know encourage them well technology is different now and you know hopefully they learn from their mistakes but the symbolism for us is this it failed the first go around because of misplaced trust why would anybody want to do the exact same thing again and Paul shows us trusting in the law doomed those Jews who only trusted in the law. So why would we as Gentiles commit the same mistake of trusting in our morality, 
the morality of the Jews could not save them, why would we as Gentiles think that our morality would ever save us? And they had the benefit of being born descendants of Abraham and having the law given to them. And they had all those benefits and still that was not enough. Why would we be Titanic too? Trust in the same failed ministry, the same faulty mentality, knowing that misplaced trust never saves. It only condemns. So for us, the final lesson is this. The heart affects holiness, affects hope. The only hope we have of praise from God is holiness. The only hope of holiness we have is not the letter, it's the Spirit. So the only hope we have of holiness is a transformed heart through the preaching of the Gospel, the receiving of the good news of Jesus Christ, the moral transformation that takes place, and then the lifestyle reflects on the outside what's already happened on the inside and when we have that a transformed heart that leads to transformed holiness then we have our only source of hope to the glory not of man to the glory of God because it's His gospel let's pray Father God we pray today for that transformation